Should we have countywide school boards? New York has a pre-K system that is a complete mess. And should schools graduate based on learning instead of time in seats? We're going to talk about it today on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome, friends. It's the Citizen Stewart Show once again. This is a podcast about education in America where we dive deep into the headlines and we cover the stories that aren't being covered elsewhere. And we also shine a light on the dark forces that are impacting public education for your kids and mine. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I am also the CEO of Brightbeam, which is a network of education activists nationally who are creating all kinds of havoc for the good, though, for the public good. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Ravi Gupta, who's not just a former Obama staffer, but also is a former superintendent of charter schools in the South. So we've got some heft to this podcast. And let's jump right in. Every week we tell you that we want to hear from our listeners. And you guys have been really good to us. We have a phone line. You can leave us voicemail messages on our phone. It's at 321-213-9171. You can also send us email if you're shy and you don't want to leave a voicemail message. That email address is citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. So this past week, we received a message from a listener on Facebook of all places. See, I gave you guys two ways to contact me and you found yet a third way to get in touch with me. You're uh, such a Gen Xer. You, you still check in your Facebook messages. Oh, You're whatever. dating yourself. Whatever. Everybody's on Facebook. Let's stop it. Billions of people on Facebook of all generations. Don't try to mm-hmm. age me out of coolness mm-hmm. there, sir. I'm also on TikTok with more views than Ravi Gupta on TikTok. So well, I've never posted a video, so it would be hard not to have more views. That's a technicality. That's just a technicality. It would be hard to have more views. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a technicality. As a matter of fact, my very first, I think, video on TikTok got 51,000 views. So there you go. And I'm not even in it. So that's amazing. Anyways, this message from one of our listeners talks about a school board in Monroe County that is thinking about, or there's actually a state that's thinking about creating a paid countywide school board. And the listener wants to know what we think about that and or if we do think about that as a topic. I will say that I could say a lot about this and in a future show. We could talk more about school boards in general. And let me just lay this out really quickly. If you are somewhere right now, I don't know how much you know about your local school board, but your school board might elect members citywide or they might elect them by districts. That's one way of electing school board members. They may be elected or appointed. That's another way of having a school board. And there are benefits and drawbacks to each of these things. Like, for instance, there are cities that want an elected board because they have an appointed one. And there's other cities that have the exact opposite thing going on. And they both think if they could just switch out from elected to appointed or appointed to elected, that would make a big difference. The interesting thing about that is that when the Council of Great City Schools studied this idea of whether or not it matters how school boards are either elected or appointed, they found no difference in student outcomes with them. They did find a slight difference in elected races if you're elected citywide versus being elected by a district in your city. And I think it came down to if you're elected by district, sometimes you're more parochial just about your district and you're not thinking about the whole school system overall as a whole. 
and it can create political kind of infighting and rent seeking. Ravi, I don't know if you have anything you want to say about this. If you have any preferences or ideas about, you know, city based or metro wide or even paid. I'm skeptical <laughs> that these types of moves are going to have a major impact on kids outside of certain local contexts where there's something particularly different going on, whether there's local corruption in certain places or, you know, on the reverse. I could see it going either way, right? Like, I generally don't like too much bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy can cut either way. You can either create a district that's too big and has too much bureaucracy, and it's hard for each locality to have their say and navigate, you know, going all the way. And sometimes you have to travel long distances in certain states to go to wherever the school board meets, right? And so these are all important things. I would want voters and parents to be able to access school board meetings, for instance, in person. Like, so are we making them go long distances? Some counties are really big. So that would be a concern. Alternatively, if you make too many local school districts, you create too much bureaucracy too, because you then have to have the same type of staff member. You have to have a superintendent for every little district. Like a district could have a hundred kids and have its own superintendent, right? I've seen this with chiefs of police, for example. Like there are certain Texas towns, you know, that have, you know, a couple thousand people and have a chief of police, right? So, and then they have to hire, they have to buy all the same equipment that the county next door is having and all this kind of stuff. So there's all sorts of jurisdictional issues, prison and jail issues, things like that. So I generally, you know, there's a sweet spot in every state. And I think this particular listener seems to think that she's onto something uh, in Pennsylvania. And I say, go for it. Like she, she frames it as an experiment. Like, let's see what happens. And so I'm, I'm cool with experiments. I think you talked about last week, try it and let's see the data. That's generally my my feeling well, on that. Well, and, and you know, I'll say this and we can move on. She's speaking to a proposal that is being proposed in her state. And the one thing that I would add about this is there's data to these things. Like, you know, when you propose something like this as a state senator or a state representative, it's incumbent upon you to also bring to bear some data behind why you're proposing a certain thing. And other states and other places have tried similar things to you. And I think it's incumbent on you to inform your constituency why you are writing this type of legislation or proposing these types of experiments. The last thing I'll say, and this is, you know, because you know so much about Tennessee, Ravi, I I think my listeners might be surprised to know that Memphis, for instance, is like one of the few cities Not even, see, I'm about to say the few, but to be very honest, I don't know of any other city that has completely revoked their own charter to educate the kids in its city. There used to be a Memphis school system and the city district, the district of Memphis, uh, Memphis Public Schools, decided to give up their charter and give it back to the state and say, hey, we're not going to educate our kids. And they turned their district and their teachers and their schools over to Shelby County which is a very mixed kind of district in terms of uh, of influence, uh, affluence and poverty and, you know, a mixed. I think the idea was Memphis was so poor and the county had so many resources that they thought by giving up their charter to educate their own kids in their own city, it would bring new resources. I don't know that it worked out that way. But this gets to the local context. These are these are the examples of where I'd be very much for county school systems, where if you can convince me that going county means that you can somehow get at segregation and resource inequality. So for instance, Chicago, for example, like there, there's so many school systems in and around Chicago. I'm not exactly sure where the, the county lines run, but if they were to consolidate many of those into one school system, that would be interesting to me. Now, it would be a step in the direction of more integration and resource equality, which I know are not the same things, but 
it's not sufficient, but probably necessary for that. And this is a really good point. I think the entire state of Ohio, if you were to look at their map of their school districts, has the opposite of what you just said going on. They have all these little carved off districts that were gerrymandered to keep certain kids and families away from others and to keep affluence in certain school districts versus others. So it's a weird, if you look at the map, when you think about the weirdest version of political gerrymandering in political districts, Think of that as how school districts in Ohio are kind of like carved out. And one more example, Indianapolis has like so many, they, they have a bizarre number of school districts all surrounding uh, Indianapolis. I forgot how many it is, but it's a lot of school districts right in the same metro area. And what people would tell you who are into integration is the way to go would be to consolidate those into a countywide district. So thank you to our listener who brought this to our attention. We will come back to this. So we appreciate you for sending this in. We also got an email from Maria Kay who says, hi, guys. Uh, I just want to say I really enjoy the show, especially Chris's perspectives, not so much Ravi's. It's made up. She said, and the unique perspectives that you each bring. Okay. So... She says she often finds herself emphatically agreeing or talking aloud to you when I'm listening, Lal. That is true. Oh, wait, she did say that. Damn it, Maria. Wait, did she email you or did she, I guess she emailed the show, which implies she's emailing you. Okay, so she does agree with you. I don't know if we should keep going. But she said, I have a topic for your consideration. The inequities involved for parents trying to obtain special education services for the children at school. She says, my, my own daughter, now in ninth grade, has ADHD, and I worked very hard and fought many battles at school to get her on a 504, which is a particular type of individualized education plan, and the support she needs to be successful. My sister, who is not a teacher, had even more difficulty getting her son on an IEP, as well as the correct designation on that IEP. And so she goes in and talks about this, and she asks how in the world... Our parents with lower education levels, fewer resources, those of color, et cetera, are supposed to have a fighting chance at advocating for what's best for their kids. So this, I want to give a callback. I'm sure Maria listened to the episode where we talked about New York and Seattle and the reporting that ProPublica did on those systems. And it's exactly what she's talking about, which is the lower income mm -hmm. families are not getting the individualized support that they need. And then the high income families, you know, Upper East Side, certain parts of Brooklyn, Brownstone, Brooklyn, are getting the outsized share of special education resources and often getting humongous checks to send their kids to private schools that don't exactly seem to be wise uses of funds, as we discussed. So the inequity is there. Uh, if Maria, if you haven't listened to that episode, I definitely recommend you go back to it, but we will definitely cover this more in the future because this is such an explosively important issue and and the inequality that you've described is certainly real. I would venture to say this is one of the largest scandals in education. Special education is like one of the biggest kind of issues for solving that gets so little attention and is getting more attention now from journalists and from parents, mostly because there are parents who have become over time very educated about the issue and they're pushing the issue in a way that it hadn't been before. I have a son that actually has a 504 plan and I can tell you that if you're not active and motivated in the process of getting what you deserve, you don't get it. It's just, there's like, we have what I consider to be fairly responsive schools in, in some ways. And it is possible to go a whole entire year without anybody kind of watching out for issues that are based upon the 504 plan. 
One last thing I'll say about this before we move on, I'll humanize it in this one way. When I was a school board member, I remember meeting with special education parents because they, well, one, they really were active in our district and they demanded a meeting because they wanted to make sure that all new school board members heard their voice. And I went and we sat down in a library in a circle. These were some of the most prepared educated and dedicated parents that I've met in any of my time campaigning or on my time on the school board. And at some point in the discussion, I said to them, it really sounds like a full-time job, this thing that you're doing. Like some of them had folders with them, mm-hmm. like they brought binders and folders. And yeah, for sure, some of them, all of them. I left that meeting with like a stack of like uh, copies yep. of things. Oh, you should read this article and this <laughs> article. And here's a book. And if you need any, if you have any questions about this, get back to me. I said to them in that meeting, being fairly new to some of the issues, said to them, this sounds like a full-time job. And they said, it is a full-time job. Like a couple of them had actually literally a mom or dad was staying home. One of them was a doctor who's decided to stay home. And that just hit me like a you know a ton of bricks. But I said to them, because I was so focused on equity in our district and the students that had less, I mean, what happens for kids that don't have a parent that can do this? And one of them piped up and she said, oh, those are the, the kids that you guys send to jail. And I was like, shocked. I was like, first of all, she was so direct and she was so honest about it. Turns out, We had a high number of kids in our district that when the principals couldn't um, handle them or whatnot, they would send them to emergency rooms. One of the people in the room was a doctor. He said, we get them at the emergency room. There's nothing wrong with them. You guys are just like finding every way you can to ship kids either to contract alternative schools or to discipline schools or to emergency rooms or whatever you can do to not deal with it. And we're the parents that you can't do that to. That was a big big learning for me. The controversial part, though, is... I have definitely had kids in my schools that I never sent anybody to the emergency room. I've never called the police on anybody, but I've definitely had kids in my schools that we did not know how to serve. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and we had to try to work with the district, which did have alternative schools. Uh, and so, you know, kids who, you know, you know, maybe their disorder would make them try to flee the premises often or, they had certain cognitive disorders that required, you know, more than one full-time staff member, right? And we're, you know, a very small school that that is has a tenuous relationship with the district. Like in Tennessee, thankfully, we were technically part of the district for special education reasons. So we did get to work with the district to get more resources, whether in our school or elsewhere. But I do think like working with the alternative schools is not inherently an evil thing for certain kids. Like there are certain kids that have such high needs that they are best served in those schools. They they can be an evil tool. Like if you, you know, send a kid away just because you don't want to deal with it versus when you can deal with it. What you said also maybe one, like think about it. I have a friend who was a superintendent of a charter school network, a very successful one, who had to quit his job because he had two special needs kids uh, mm-hmm. and he wanted mm-hmm. to take care of his kids. So it's real out there. It's real. <laughs> it's real in these streets. Let's yeah. move on. Before we do, I want to point people to an article they can go look up. I think it's very important. Uh, there's an article in uh, the Detroit Free Press right now about a family and they're the parents of a student named Bennett Solomon. He was constantly getting restrained and was put into seclusion in his Michigan school district that he was going to, a school district in Michigan. They moved to Pennsylvania to another school district, and the experience between for their son between the school in Michigan and the school in Pennsylvania is night and day. Same kid, 
same problem, has autism, same background, but when he was in the Michigan school district, they kept putting him into seclusion and using um, serious restraints on him. And in the new school, he is flourishing and he is taking on extracurriculars as part of band, all these other things that would have seemed impossible in his old school district. It's a lesson on how the same kid with the same situation put into two different school districts could live out two different lives completely. And in one situation, he would be blamed. He would be the problem. That child would be the problem. Not the educators, not the system, not the people who are supposed to know everything. And in the other system, the kid wouldn't be blamed. The kid would be supported and he would be in a good system and he would flourish. So this is that's a story about choice. It's a it's a story about options. Like not everybody has the option to move from Michigan to Pennsylvania, and it's really a story about the belief gap. Like in his old district, I'm sure no one believed that he could be thriving the way that he thrives now. In his new district, they take responsibility for him thriving the way that he does now. Mm-hmm. I like that term, the belief gap. People need to talk about this belief gap more. I've been talking about it for lots of years. Maybe we should do a whole show on it because the research is pretty sound on the belief gap. I'm ready. It's very sound, though. I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Maria Kay, as always, uh, we appreciate you listening, and thank you for uh, sending this in to us. We will, in a future show, as always, come back to these issues and layer in more information on them. So let's move on to something that is making us mad. And I don't know why we keep coming back to New York. I didn't pick this story. I don't know that I picked this story. Maybe did I pick this story? I don't know. Like, because I don't remember. It, it, well, it's going to start to sound to people like I've got it out for New York. That's the only reason I'm saying is like, I don't know. I that do. I this it's story it's where I was up. born and raised and where I live most of the time. And I have major problems, Tommy says I picked it. Uh, Yeah, okay, so I guess I picked it. But I do think New York is a good example of how not to do government sometimes. And I think uh, sometimes not how to do education. So you you wanna set the scene for us here? I think you should set the scene being from New York, but this is what I'll say about it, is not about the topic, just in general about New York. New York is the largest school district in the United States. There's a reason why it comes up so often in education debate, because it's kind of a catch-all for everything that could be right or wrong with the school district. But the size of it, the scope and the scale and the size of the New York public schools and the school system, to me, lends itself to having every kind of systemic problem that you could possibly have. It's too big in my mind. And we should not set national education advocacy policy around New Yorkizing education everywhere else like like when we talk about like systems New York is different mm-hmm. it's a it's its own animal it's a rare beast there's no other besides LA and Chicago nothing comes close well maybe Miami is like in a fourth you know place there but nothing comes close so anyways with that why Ravi are uh, people complaining about the pre-k system of New York City going from one, it used to be a model apparently, and now employees are saying that it's a mess according to a story that was published on the 6th of January in the New York Times. Well, I'll tell you what hasn't changed. The quality of it hasn't changed that much. It's just that people were calling it a model before it really had chance to put enough, like to exist long enough for people to even know whether it was working or not. But people want to believe this so bad. I wouldn't believe pre-K works. Why not? Like, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you root for more education for kids earlier working. But it's complicated. I talked about this a year ago on the Lost Debate show when we talked about there's this Tennessee study on pre-K that was released last year that showed that in Tennessee, it's one of the only 
It's one of the only, if not the only, randomized control trial on pre-K ever done. There's one study in Boston that you could argue is a randomized control trial. And the one in Tennessee showed that not only was pre-K not helping the kids in it, but actually the kids who they followed who did the pre-K system in Tennessee were worse off having done pre-K than the kids who didn't. Now, I'll come back to that because that's a startling piece of data and it's just one state, but there, there we could surmise why that's the case when we come back to it. And it's related to New York. So people are talking about this New York stuff. I've been hearing about this in the background for a while, but Troy Clausen in the New York Times wrote an article last week called New York City's pre-K system was a model. Now employees say it's a mess. And it interviews a bunch of current and former employees who talk about all sorts of problems with it, funding issues, just issues around quality and training and equity. The, the way that's run is a little interesting. It's a mixture of direct run pre-K and nonprofit run external providers running pre-K. And so the interesting stuff here is the devil, yes, the devil's in the details, and we could talk through the details of what particularly is wrong with New York's pre-K system. But what, what's important to me as somebody who's been a student of New York government and has gotten a lot of people elected in New York is that this is a school that was winning, this is a system that was winning accolades. De Blasio basically trumpeted as the most important thing he ever did. Politicians are doing ribbon cuttings and take credit for it. But as often happens, this is a major investment of money and time both the time of the staff and the people who work for the city, but also the time of children. And what happened here was once the sort of the the, the press stopped looking and politicians stopped, you know, got the credit they wanted for starting this program, the follow-through was absolutely atrocious. And now even the follow-through on funding this has been atrocious. There are people who, you know, there are there are vendors who aren't getting paid. There's, you know, massive threats of insolvency for a program. You know, and we're talking about New York, which we had we talked about in special education, was spending over a billion dollars a year just on these fancy upper east siders for special education. We're a place that spends more on public works, uh, you know, to, to build a mile of subway or build a public restroom than anywhere else in the world. We are the place of you know big spending, big government. It's amazing to me that we have a uh, a system of pre-K. You know the most vulnerable kids, the youngest kids we've got that could be going insolvent. But I think this is you know what I said a year ago about pre-K was if you're not doing K well, you're probably not going to be doing pre-K well either. And I'll generally support pre-K expansion, but it ain't going to solve the problems that exist in the K to 12 system. Because if you can't get it right at any other grade, pre-K is even harder. So I think that's largely what's going on here. But how is that an indictment of pre-K? No, no, it's not. I'm not saying it's an indictment. Yeah, I'm saying this is an indictment of New York's implementation of pre-K. Mm -hmm. And also a reminder that pre-K is not a panacea. It is. It can be a very meaningful step in the right direction, but it can, like, you know, as Tennessee showed, it can actually do harm. You know, this is a Vanderbilt study with 2,990 low-income children in Tennessee who applied for a free public pre-kindergarten program. And as I mentioned, it, at least to the study, and you talked about yours, like, look to the results. In that study, the kids were worse off <laughs> after they did the pre-K program. And so Boston had a different study that, that I mentioned earlier that showed actually the exact opposite results. And what's interesting is the Boston pre-K program was mixed income, whereas the Tennessee program was all low income. That could be a difference. It could also just be a difference. Tennessee was statewide. Boston's program was specific to its state. 
we could untangle the Christmas lights here and try to figure out what made one more effective than the others. But I, you know, for me, I'm, I'm generally, you have to do that though, Ravi, I have to say this. You really do have to do that. You have to untangle it because in Tennessee, here's the bullet point in Tennessee, it was found that early ed actually did harm to kids. That's the bullet point in the soundbite. And that's literally not what the study actually found in Tennessee. The, the study found Well, it, what it found was if you did it, you were more likely to have bad outcomes later on. Now, there's something that could, there's, there could be some confounding variable for sure. But I yeah, think if it- they have a terrible if, system. They have a terrible yeah. early ed system in comparison to other states. Here's one factor. New Jersey, first of all, in all these other states, from Georgia to New Jersey and everywhere else, the, the findings are solid. Being in early ed state programs is actually good for you. But you look at New Jersey's program where they spend 15000 a child, and in Tennessee, they spend $4,500 per child, right? So it's almost like three times the amount. They have a crappy system. Of course, if you put kids into a crappy statewide early ed system, and then you get a finding that says you were you were harmed by doing that, the finding isn't on early ed. Yeah. The finding is on your state system, your I Tennessee system. I think we're saying system. the same thing, though. I'm not saying I'm against early ed. And... And I think it is important to note that all those other states that we talked about, uh, from what I can tell, are not conducting randomized control trials. So it's like really hard to, to make heads or tails of that data. Now, what I what I think is absolutely true, though, is if Tennessee's study showed that the pre-K worked, most people would be just trumpeting that because it confirms what people want to believe, which is that early ed works. So actually, one of the reasons why I take the Tennessee study so seriously is that I wouldn't want to believe it on the face of it, right? It's not the kind of thing I want to believe to be true. But I think what you said is absolutely right. I've seen what the K looks like. So the pre-K is probably not much different. And the kindergarten programs for low-income kids are often unsafe. They're often chaotic. There's often very little learning going on. And it's often not a place for children to thrive. And so if you take a kid who's hanging out in their neighborhood or their house with their aunties and uncles, but now they're in this program that's poorly run, that may be unsafe, that's underfunded, where kids aren't learning, it I'm, it doesn't take a lot to convince me that does active harm to kids. And that gets to New York now, which is a place that, you know, we could always argue about more funding, but New York's problem often is not that it about funding. It's often something else because we do spend almost more money on, on per kid in New York than anywhere else in, in the country, even if you adjust for cost of living. And so... To me, New York is a, you have these people, Bill de Blasio, let's, let's ask the question, how much thought do we think Bill de Blasio put into the quality of this program? Do we think he, you know, a guy who showed up to work at 11 a.m. every day after he did his workout in Park Slope and spent less time <laughs> at City Hall every day, you know, seemed to be bothered by the very idea that he would have to be mayor who was running for yeah. president in a quixotic presidential campaign right into the lead up to COVID, including in, you know, in February of 2020, even after he'd lost, was doing TV appearances on the regular instead of you know doing the unsexy work of being mayor. I mean, I'm obviously asking a rhetorical question. Of course he wasn't diving into <laughs> the unsexy details of this. And so this is what I'm getting at. Like this stuff is really freaking hard to pull off. Well, right? well, but a question about that was, 
was his people diving into those questions? Like, I, I mean, you know, the way you loaded up the question there, I, I had to think to myself, okay, this feels like I'm being boxed in. I don't yes. know how to answer this question. I don't think that Bill himself spent a lot of time thinking about it. But. Well, if you read the article, the employees are saying they didn't. The employees are frustrated. Like, you know, they're talking about how there were you know, situations like, so here it's, you know, one employee who declined to be named for fear of uh, professional retribution said after a preschool site earned one of the lowest scores, they could recall in a program assessment, the evaluators raised concerns with leaders and that the group was admonished for giving them the low ratings. I mean, this is, this goes beyond incompetence. This is actually retribution for calling out problems within the system. Like, because it's inconvenient yeah. to point out these things to people who are running for office on the very success of programs that they don't want to put the work in to make them successful. You know what I'm saying? So this is, this, this concerns me. I get it. And you know, like, I bet you, you could say this about a lot of issues in New York, like not just this particular issue. It feels like I, I find one thing after another with testing and outcomes and the system of rating schools and whatever, it comes back to this type of discussion of just kind of how mixed up the bureaucracy is there. And how expensive it is. That's the other thing. Like right. It's an expensive, malfunctioning bureaucracy. All right. Well, listen, before we move on from this, I will say that I want to rescue in this conversation early, Ed. Um, <laughs> I, feel like, uh, I feel like the research, the, the mountain of solid research on early, Ed, even withstanding Ravi's take that this is the only randomized trial, which I'm not going to believe until after this show when I check it out. But the well, um, I'll tell you where I got that from. I got that from the article. So it's possible one came out between, uh, I think it was February of 2022 that NPR reported on this. So there's an NPR article, we could put it in the show notes, that talks about the Tennessee study coming out. And in that NPR article, NPR claims that it is the only randomized control study on pre-K effectiveness ever done. There's separate articles that talk about this Boston study that use language akin to a randomized control study. So my sense is those two are close enough, but I'd be shocked if NPR made that claim out of nowhere. So it's possible that something else has happened since then. I guess what I'm going to say is, what I'm going to stick on is the overwhelming mound of decades worth of research on this question and having worked with foundations that actually fund a lot of the research on this is not going to be wiped away in my mind by that, that bullet point around Tennessee's randomized study in a very low quality ed system. And, and by ed system, I mean early ed system, lower quality teachers, lower funding, bigger class sizes, all the things that when you rate early ed systems across states actually make a difference. But this was an indictment on one state's, this is, a, this was an indictment on one state's uh, pre-K. And this one study is the ivermectin of people who, who hate hearing about early ed so much and don't think that it is. What the Federal Reserve has said is, is the education intervention that repays you $16 for every $1. And I can send you to the scholar. The scholar in Georgetown is very skeptical about all these things who actually got turned around because <laughs> uh, he's but more of you, an economist guy. And he's like, you know, yeah, I, it's a good investment. When we were arguing about school closures, yeah. and I was very, I, I, I was pro school closures initially, but I think they went too far. You said to me multiple times, you said, well, the system is so bad that 
like kids not going to school in a building, like we shouldn't take for take it as a given that being in those school buildings is actually helpful to them. And that's a that is a cousin of what I'm saying, which is it's not like like this pre-K school, this is basically what you acknowledge is possibly happening in, in Tennessee, is that the system is so bad that if you offer more of the system to certain kids, they're worse off. And yes, in a utopian world where the system is awesome, and I'm sure there are places across America where the system is awesome, so if you offer more of the system, it helps children. But in, in so many places, the system is bad. And when we say pre-K, quote unquote, works or doesn't, which is way too reductive for me and probably for you too, but if you're saying it works or doesn't in your town, it's not, could it work if we did all these millions of things that we're not doing in the case system? I think the easiest way to look at it is if we, if we did more of what we're doing in kindergarten and we did a little bit different because the kids are younger, would this be net positive or not? And is it a better use of resources than what we would otherwise spend that money on? And I think the data is mixed. Like that, that seems pretty sure to me. Now we now have people in New York complaining about what's going on there. Um, the own employees who do the program are saying it's turning into a shit show. And then you have Tennessee, which, you know, Vanderbilt study, Peabody, randomized control study that says kids were worse off there. I think that's significant. This is the point I think we, we're not agreeing on though. And I just want to make sure that I, I, I nail it down and then we can move on. It did not say that early ed. It said that Tennessee's kids put into Tennessee's crappy, low quality early ed system actually were harmed by doing that. And I don't know how you could not be harmed if your system is characterized, unlike other states that have much better systems, characterized by low investment, crappy teachers that have low credentials, lower credentials than other states, and you have a lower bar for everything than every other state. That's not an indictment on early ed writ large in my mind. That's a indictment on your crappy state. And we love to hold Tennessee up for other reasons because we have friends there that are doing reformy things and we love to hold them up on other things, but we never talk about the fact that they have a crappy early ed system. They have a crappy state takeover system when they take over places or whatnot because we have friends involved in those things. I have no problem saying all of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's but a lot that, of crappy stuff in Tennessee. I have no problem is, calling out. They're an armpit on but, some of these things. So you can't say like, well, Michigan's early ed system yeah, but you, is characterized by Tennessee's, you know, it's just not true. I'll employ our audience, our audience is getting to know us now, to to listen to the way you talk about the system writ large and compare it to this right now. Like you are often very hard on the system and you often call it crappy almost everywhere. Uh, and so I think even including to the point where you said, hey, COVID if kids don't go to the buildings, maybe they're better off because the system sucks. You've said some version of that to me many times. Yes, and I want to be clear for the record, and you and I talked about this on more than one occasion now, what changed in me during the pandemic was at the beginning of the pandemic, I would have said to you, and I've said this on this show, I think, before, I would have said to you at the beginning of the pandemic, if you just send kids home with an iPad, they'll probably be better off than the slop that they're getting in American public schools. This was like something rhetorically mm -hmm. that I was, I was fond of saying. During the mm -hmm. pandemic, when I had three kids that were at home uh, doing remote learning and everything, <laughs> and all of my conservative friends were clamoring around how important it was to get everybody back into these schools that we all had been saying were so terrible. I mean, oh my God, before we were like, oh my God, American kids need to get out of these schools. We need school choice. We need to move them out of there. We need to get them in the safe harbor. And now you have those same people 
who, when they run for office, are running on campaigns of how quickly they got kids back into those same schools that were just so terrible. And the system was just so awful and we just needed so many alternatives. I changed during the pandemic. My politics changed to a politics of practicality. And in the practical world, you can make lots of complaints about the system that are valid and on point, but they should be on point for improvement of the system, not for trying to prove that nobody needs it or you know we'd be better off without it, because that's just not true. I think we learned over three years just how everybody agreed, from liberal moms in San Francisco to politicians running in deep water, MAGA, Florida, everybody agreed that these schools are just so important that we got to get kids back in them and keep them open. Right. In a way that had never been Mm -hmm. before, like people who would have never said that before. I have so many thoughts on this, including the (laughs) reference point that you give of the conservatives and and how much stock you put in that. And but I I don't think we have time for that because there's one more thing I want to talk about today. And this is the think part of the conversation. Let's go to this. We'll come back to this, though, for our friends. Yes. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I, I sense I sense. I have a feeling we both have contradicted ourselves in that last segment, not necessarily within the segment, but based on other things we've said, which is fine. People contradict themselves. But this Ed Week piece, this is from a couple years ago, but it's very provocative. It says, graduation must depend on learning, not time. Very simple argument that these authors are making, and there's there's quite a few authors, so I won't go through them, but shout out to them uh, for a provocative piece that made us think. They're basically arguing that we should use a competency-based system of promotion instead of a social promotion system, meaning we should move kids along in the system based on what they learn and whether they've learned, not how old they are. (laughs) This is an interesting idea. I am generally for it. I think there are definitely some practicalities, but I'm generally for it for a lot of reasons. But I'll kick it to you, Chris, because this is one of those areas where I'm not sure exactly where you'd come down. Well, first, let me say this. This is actually the the brainchild of an alliance of urban superintendents who say, we are calling for a competency-based system of education that looks nothing like our current model. It would be centered on ensuring all students meet a life-ready standard. The current education system is designed to give a fraction of our children the highest quality education. It is designed for inequity. The pandemic showed us just how much. Achieving real equity in education does not mean that all kids learn the same things at the same pace, but at a minimum, equity dictates All kids get the support they need to be educated for success in life and after high school. That all sounds good to me. I mean, man, it hit all my buttons. It's got like equity in it and different than our current (laughs) model. We've been saying for years, everything is outdated and whatever. Listen, the thing for me as somebody who was restless in high school and bored a lot of the time, and I'm sure a lot of kids are, and noting the thing that I saw in summit schools years ago that made me so enamored with their their platform that I keep mentioning it today is just that young people in those, in that school system were able to move along at their own pace. And if they were going to be ahead of the students in their class or behind the students in their class, they were still on track. They were still kind of like kept on their own time and system. And why should it take you four years if it doesn't take you four years to graduate yes. from high school? If you, if you max it out, I'll give one great example. Folks, you guys should look up Haley Taylor Schlitz. She's somebody that has done influence work with my organization, Brightbeam. And she graduated at 16, I think, and graduated law law school at 19. 
And, you know, she has a mom that grew up in Watts. Her dad died at 13. She grew up in some rough circumstances. And when it came time for her to educate her own kids, she's just like, I got to pull you out of the regular schools and just homeschool you. And she did. And so if it's possible that a Haley Taylor Schlitz could have went through the normal 12 years and maybe kind of been drugged down by it versus graduating as the youngest African-American law school student in the state of Texas and to pass the bar. I mean, I'm not saying that's going to be every kid's story. I'm just, it's just, it's a it's a long story to tell you kind of what's possible. We could be holding kids back just because we have this outdated notion of how much time they should be in a seat. And oh, by the way, yes. that time in the seat doesn't have anything to do with learning. We are graduating kids yes. who have a eighth grade reading level and below in some cases. We are graduating kids who graduated after 12, 13 years who aren't capable of filling out an application to a job like to get a job at Subway. So. Well, I, I'm kind of bummed that you didn't disagree with me on this, but I'm glad I'm glad you believe what you believe. <laughs> I have a I have a simple question I, I ask people about this. And it comes down to pick something where the stakes of knowing something are extremely high. So a good example is a few years ago, I learned to surf. Now, in, in order to learn to surf, I do lessons. Now, a critical part of surfing has to do with like the low stakes work that you do in the white water, like on the beach where the, the waves have broken already and you just kind of learn to stand up on a board. How absurd would it be if they just have amount of days? It has nothing to do with that you learn to actually do the moves of surfing, but it just they say, oh, you, you've done three days. Now we're going to take you out the back where the waves break and where you could actually drown if you don't know what you're doing. Of course that would be absurd. Or if you were learning to fly airplanes and they're like, you know what? It's two weeks to learn how to fly or whatever. I'm just making that up. Two months, whatever, two years. And just because you've been in that seat for that long, we're going to let you fly airplanes or perform heart surgery. Of course you'd say no. So the same should be true of our kids. I also think that the authors here make some interesting points. One is that this actually would lead to more time and more specialization for educators because they would have to, like uh, the average teacher, we've been talking about differentiation and creating this 150 person classroom and having multiple teachers, you know, working with smaller groups of kids for this, this, and this. This would, this would rid us from a lot of the need to do all this complicated differentiation within the same classrooms and instead allow teachers to be like, I'm the person who teaches fractions along like denominators. I'm the teacher who teaches basic addition. I'm the teacher who does this and this and this. Now, I could be obviously the same teacher, but they, they could specialize each time of the day with kids and they wouldn't have to do 20 things for 20 different kids in a classroom who come in with wildly different needs. Uh, there also would be less of a need for honor system. So we can get rid of some of the, a lot of this magnet bullshit where instead of saying, all right, you're the advanced kid, we say you are in an advanced class and the kid who's coming in behind you, if the stars aligned, can catch up to you and they will get the exact same class as another kid who may be older, but who lives in the fancy neighborhood. And my favorite part of why I like this is it would actually force school systems to articulate what kids actually need to know. Because I think often these places just know how much time the kids need to spend and they have a vague sense of what they want the kids to know and be once they leave the system. But if you had to force those systems to actually articulate a system of competency-based promotion, they'd have to know what the competencies are. And they'd have to be tangible. They'd have to measure them. They'd have to be able to explain to parents whether the kids knew it or not and be able to compare it across districts. And I actually think that would be awesome. So I'm very much for this. I wish more places experimented with it. The obvious downside is that certain kids could be old and socially 
like could be in classrooms that could be in, in, it could be an embarrassing situation. And I think that is very real and something that we would need to spend some time in order to, to mitigate, probably through differentiation of the school day where certain social activities happen with kids of similar age groups, like sports and things like that, but also some sense of urgency for those kids who are many years behind where you would expect them to be on a given competency. I mean, on that last point, it feels like this forces your hand to have to start also thinking about how ridiculous it is that we have age bands. Right. Like intergenerational classrooms is a thing with Montessori education and other forms of education. This idea that you're strictly, if you're, you know, 12 to 13, this is your group type of thing doesn't really hold up, I think, anymore the way that it used to. This would probably make you rethink that. I, as you were talking, this is the thing that was coming to my mind was that th these are urban educators who are actually pushing this, uh, urban superintendents. And I, I, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. No matter what, you're always going to come back to testing, though, I think. Because if you're measuring what students are learning and saying that they're meeting the competencies, right now we have this thing called state standards. How do we know whether or not kids are meeting those state standards? I don't know how because we're passing them. It can't be grades because we're passing them along from grade to grade to grade without them actually literally meeting the state standards on things. Well, they're very vague, Chris. One of the first things I ever did to train to be a school principal was this woman named Sue Walsh, who was a former school principal in Boston, trained me on taking the state standards and then breaking them down into discrete skills. And often you could take one standard and you create 25 skills off of it because it's so general, you know? So these standards are not great. They're vague. Even in the Common Core, they're too vague. And, and then your way of knowing whether or not you're meeting them can't just though, to my point, just can't be grades. Like, like you can't, because right now kids clearly aren't meeting whatever state standards there are, however vague, they're not between third and sixth grade learning the things they need to, you know, eighth and, and 12th grade learning what they need or whatever. It's just not happening, but yet they're passing along. I mean, we're lying to kids. Wasn't there a report a few years ago called the honesty gap that came out and, you know, it was about, we're lying to kids. Basically we're telling them that they're more prepared than they actually are or that they've learned more than they actually have by the current system. So anyways, I'm only bringing that up to say with these urban superintendents who are pushing this, you're still going to have to be able to prove that the kids, uh, this actually might be more of a reason that you would have to prove that the kids are meeting the competencies. That's why I like it. Yeah, it, it absolutely, I mean, not the only reason why I like it, but it certainly is, is, is harder to bullshit. In, under this system than it is right now. Okay, then here's a cynical question then. Why would they propose it then? I know. <laughs> Why well, would I was they worried, propose it? I was worried knowing you that me being for this would make you skeptical. <laughs> so I was, I was almost thinking I would go, I would be against it. You just I'm made glad me we're skeptical. On the same page about it. No, you just I know, made I'm me sorry. skeptical. Oh, Why God. would they push it? Why oh, would they... Give me a cycle, a good cycle. <laughs> I, it's uh, funny. You're you know, calling. I, I think yeah. you're putting me in the cynical, the sinister day. Uh, it's some grand plan, uh, but no, I don't know. But I don't. We should do more of this. It's hard to do because parents get really upset. Often parents don't want it, uh, which is why I think I would want it in a school of choice first. Schools of choice where parents pick it. I would certainly, if this were my kid, I would pick this for my kid. Because mm -hmm. your kid is your kid could be advanced, and this is great for advanced kids. It's no matter what. And I was the kind of kid who was both advanced and behind because I moved around as a kid a lot. So my math knowledge, for example, was very spotty because I would miss because it was pre Common Core and all that. There weren't standards from state to state that were shared, so I'd often miss huge swaths of math. 
but I was also an incredibly well-read kid. So I was often bored in English class, writing class. I was also was, I had two parents who were doctors, so I was really good at science. So there's certain classes that I was really advanced in and then certain classes I was really terrible at. And if you were to offer me the opportunity to go skill by skill, I would have thrived in that environment. Like that would have been mm -hmm. awesome. And I would have thrived both because I was behind and because I was at. Yeah, well, where I will end on this is just that no matter what, I think we actually have to be willing to get rid of our sacred cows when it comes to the education system. Just because we've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean that it's actually still good or it's a thing that we should be doing. The way that we grade students or advance them or to describe what they've learned, the way that we do everything should be up for grabs. We've actually been turning out kids for so long that are minimally capable of a fruitful intellectual life in a country that is living in the best information age that there has ever been, that it should put everything in question. Our standards, our testing, our assessments, our process, our pathways, our systems for how kids are assigned to schools or how they end up in a classroom, all of it's up for grabs in my mind, and we need better ideas and attitudes for that. I will say at the end of the show, for you all that are listening, we know that we have some pretty educated listeners. We get it when we get your feedback that you are pretty educated. So please send us feedback on issues that you think that came up in this particular episode that we should come back to or that you have thoughts and ideas about or additional pieces of information, articles, studies, research, things that make for good intellectual debate on this show. You can send it to us by our voicemail or email. If you want to give us a voicemail, it's 321-213-9171. I'll say that again. If you want to send us a voicemail, it's at 321-213-9171. And if you want to send us an email, you can send that to Citizen Stewart Show at lostdebate.com. Again, that's Citizen Stewart Show at lostdebate.com. As always, we appreciate you for listening. If you could, please leave a review of the show and rate the show, especially if you found value in the show continuing. We would love for you to share it with your friends and family and to let other listeners know that there is a valuable thing to be had here. Thank you so much. This concludes another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. 